0: There's a character named Doc Graham from the movie Field of Dreams and from the book the movie is based on, Shoeless Joe, written by W.P. Kinsella. Doc Graham, played in the film by Burt Lancaster, became a doctor and served his community for 50 years. He was well-loved and well-respected, but something always nagged at him. Before he'd become a doctor, Graham was a ball player who scrapped and clawed his way through the minors and dreamed of getting called up to the major leagues. And one day he was called up, only to have the game end before he could step up to the plate. If there's an example of someone getting as achingly close to your dream as possible without achieving it, Doc Graham is that person. That was it for the character's baseball career. Except... Doc Graham wasn't just a character in Field of Dreams or in Kinsella's novel Shoeless Joe. Doc Archie Moonlight Graham was a real person with real hopes and dreams who nearly got his shot in 1905, but then didn't. Our human lives are precarious, fickle things. We can plan and train and prepare, but luck or fate can lift us up or shove us to the ground. And it's what we decide to do after these moments that shapes us the most. In today's episode, split into five parts, I'll explore the lives of people who could have been known for their baseball careers, but instead become known for something else entirely. I'll discuss Doc Graham, a few well-known film stars, and a notorious gangster and bank robber whose life turned south after his dance with baseball came to an end. You're listening to the Midnight Library of Baseball, where there are no loud noises, no jarring music, only nostalgic, thought-provoking, emotional stories about baseball. I'm Ben Orlando. Before I return to Doc Moonlight Graham, I'd like to discuss a man who's a close second to Graham in terms of making his big lead dreams come true. His films include Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Hateful Eight, Tombstone, Overboard, Vanilla Sky, and Dozens More. He was also the uncredited voice of Elvis Presley and Forrest Gump. His name is Kurt Russell, and if he had had his wish... He would have been a baseball star instead of a movie star, no questions asked. Kurt Russell grew up in two worlds, the world of acting and the world of baseball, just like his father, Neil Oliver Russell, known to all as Bing Russell. And Bing Russell had played semi-professional ball and had a recurring role in the 60s show Bonanza. Bing Russell later owned several semi-pro ball clubs, which factors into the latter half of this story. While starring in major roles in his teens, Kurt Russell also lived and breathed baseball. His father wrote instructional manuals used by big league names, such as Detroit Tigers manager Sparky Anderson. Also, Major League pitcher Lefty Gomez became a close family friend. Kurt Russell's grandfather, Bud, was a daredevil pilot, And in 1936, Lefty Gomez won at flying lessons. Well, the two men became friends, and Gomez became something of a godparent to Kurt's father, Bing, and then to Kurt. And Lefty Gomez was not just any major league pitcher. Gomez pitched for the Yankees and won 20 games four different seasons. He started in six World Series games and won all six, and was eventually inducted into the Hall of Fame. Gomez was also known as El Goofo and Goofy Gomez for his sense of humor and antics on and off the field. So it wasn't just that Kurt Russell had baseball role models. He had accomplished role models with lighthearted personalities that contributed to Russell's worldview and his understanding that he could never dream too big. In addition to real-life role models, Kurt Russell read and reread Ted Williams' The Science of Hitting perceived as the baseball bible for thousands of players in the second half of the 20th century. So, on a checklist of tools needed to groom a boy into a ball player, what is helpful? A father who played ball at a high level and continues to train and teach in the field? Check. A family who talks non-stop about baseball, allowing for the theory, fundamentals, and heart of baseball to seep into the mind and bones? Check. Check. A godfather who, in 1999, was ranked number 73 on the sporting news list of the 100 greatest baseball players? Check. And what about a ball machine in your backyard? From the age of 12, Kurt Russell had a pitching machine in his backyard and spent hours drilling and tweaking his form. Through constant practice, feedback from his father, his godfather, and Ted Williams' famous book, The Science of Hitting, Russell polished his game until he was playing semi-pro ball as a second baseman by the age of 15. If this wasn't enough, Russell was also a switch hitter, meaning he could bat from either side of the plate. After high school, Russell was nearly drafted by the Twins, Giants, and Yankees, but there was trepidation because of his acting career and the question of whether he could commit Remember, Russell was acting by the age of 11 and starring in shows like Gilligan's Island, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., Lost in Space, and The Fugitive by his early teens. But Russell made time for baseball, making sure not to act between February and August. After jumping around on different semi-pro teams, including participation in spring training in Hawaii twice, Russell played double-A ball in 1973 and hit. 5.63 5.63 in six games before tearing his rotator cuff. He tried to come back, but as was the case with many baseball stories, he wasn't the same. In an interview for Far Out magazine, Russell recounted the day he found out his career had ended. Quote, I found out it was over from a doctor who had a terrible bedside manner. He examined me and said, aren't you an actor too? I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, you're an actor all the time now, ha ha. That was it. He just walked out of the room. I sat there for like 10 minutes, not knowing what to do. I was like, is that it? A nurse had to come in and get me. I was just devastated. End quote. Before he hung up his cleats, Russell played 23 games for the Portland Mavericks, a semi-pro team founded and run by Russell's father, Bing. The Mavericks was an entertaining team of misfits made up of rookies, minor league veterans, and major league players close to retirement who were just looking for one last chance to play ball. The Mavericks' story is told in a Netflix documentary, The Battered Bastards of Baseball, which was produced by Kurt Russell's cousins, Chapman Way and McLean Way. Before the team shut down for good in 1977, Kurt Russell came back and suited up for one last game. Of course, Russell went on to do just fine in Hollywood, but his first choice was always baseball. From an interview in 1972, he said, quote, Achieving awards in acting doesn't appeal to me. I don't know why, but achieving awards in baseball appeals to me a lot. I'd love to win most valuable player in any league, or win the batting title, or be the premier fielder in the league. End quote. And to reiterate how big baseball was in the Russell family, Kurt Russell's father played baseball. Kurt Russell played baseball. Russell's two cousins produced the documentary, The Battered Bastards of Baseball, about Bing Russell's semi-pro team, the Portland Mavericks which was an endeavor that involved much of the Russell family. And Kurt Russell's sister, Jill, had a son, Matt Franco, who became a major league first baseman and played from 1995 to 2003. So were there any other actors that nearly went the way of the diamond? Well, how about this guy? An actor and director known for E.R., The Perfect Storm, Oh Brother Where Art Thou?, and one of my favorite movies, Ocean's Eleven. George Clooney grew up playing baseball and basketball, and he was good enough at baseball to try out for the Cincinnati Reds. Clooney said about his tryout, I had everything else. I had a good hat. I had a good uniform. I just lacked skill. I lacked the ability to play the game, But Clooney worked on his game, and when he tried out again the next year with the Reds, he made it to the second round. In his second round, Clooney did well hitting 82 mile per hour fastballs, and he thought he was good to go. Then the pitcher threw a curveball, which Clooney thought was coming for his head. He jumped out of the way, and from the ground he watched as the ball ended up on the outside part of the plate. Everyone laughed, according to Clooney who said, quote, I was like, oh, dude, I'm not going to be a professional baseball player. This is a different level. I didn't understand that until right then. End quote. In the summer of 1934, gangster and bank robber John Dillinger spent his days hiding from the law in a brothel run by a madam named Anna Kumpanis. A few months earlier, Dillinger had been injured in a shootout, so he recovered at his father's home, then moved to the brothel, where, not long into his stay, Anna Companys tipped off the FBI to Dillinger's whereabouts. On July 22nd, exiting the Biograph Theater in Chicago, Illinois, Dillinger found himself surrounded by the police. He tried to flee and was shot dead. Dillinger was 31 years old when he died and lived on as an infamous criminal. But if a few things had happened differently, Dillinger might have been playing Major League Baseball in 1934, instead of robbing banks and getting shot. John Dillinger, or Johnny, was born in 1903 outside Indianapolis. Dillinger grew up playing and loving baseball and as a teenager in the early 1920s, played for the AC Athletics, and made $75 a month, equivalent to $1,300 today. Dillinger, 5'7", 150 pounds, was known as the Jackrabbit for his size and speed. He was the leadoff hitter and even earned a $25 prize for being the best hitter on his team. Also, according to Dillinger's baby sister, Major League Scouts came to see the Jackrabbit play, and she said of Dillinger, quote, he was good enough to go pro, end quote. If Dillinger had had good role models like Kurt Russell, he might have pursued baseball. He might have dedicated himself to fixing his weak spots and prepping himself for the major leagues. Instead, Dillinger had the unfortunate luck to play in a league with an umpire who happened to be an ex-con named Ed Singleton. Dillinger and Singleton went drinking after the games, and that's where Singleton talked Dillinger into helping him rob a grocery store. On September 26, 1924, Dillinger and Singleton hid in a church and waited for the owner of the store, an old man named Morgan. When Morgan appeared around the corner with the cash box, Singleton and Dillinger, who carried a pistol given to him by Singleton, accosted the old man but Morgan wouldn't give up the box. There was a scuffle, and the gun went off, wounding Morgan as Dillinger and Singleton ran away. Young Johnny Dillinger was caught soon after and received a sentence of 10 to 20 years. Fast forward to 1929 with reporter Tubby Toms, who attended a baseball game at the Indiana Reformatory and happened to find a seat next to Governor Harry Leslie who was present that day for a parole hearing. As the two men watched the game, they became fixated on one man in particular. According to Toms, quote, neither the governor nor I could keep our eyes off the reformatory shortstop. His play was marvelous both in the field and at bat, end quote. As it turned out, the parole hearing the governor had come for was John Dillinger's. At the hearing, Dillinger, who'd spent five years at the reformatory, requested to be transferred to the state prison in Michigan City, which was a much tougher prison. But, according to Dillinger, quote, they have a real ball team up there, end quote. Apparently, the parole board laughed at the request until the governor intervened. Leslie replied, quote, gentlemen. I saw this gentleman play baseball this afternoon, and let me tell you, he's got major league stuff in him. What reason can there be for denying him this request? It might play an important part in his reformation. End quote. Dillinger's request was granted, and the state prison was indeed an important part of Dillinger's development, but not in a good way. Perhaps because the prison was more traumatic than he'd expected or perhaps because he decided to focus his full attention on crime, John Dillinger did not end up playing baseball at the state prison. Instead, he formed his criminal outfit there, the Dillinger Gang. And when he was released in 1933, the Dillinger Gang got to work, ultimately robbing 24 banks and 4 police stations. In the robberies, 10 men were killed and 7 wounded. Dillinger was only ever charged with one homicide, but was ultimately not convicted. Dillinger also broke out of prison twice, and during his final run, he risked capture and death by attending a baseball game at Wrigley Field in June of 1934. Dillinger had undergone plastic surgery to change his identity, but apparently it was a botched job and Dillinger ended up leaving the game early when he was tipped off that there were a few federal agents at the game. In spite of the death and mayhem he created, John Dillinger and other bank robbers like him were seen as folk heroes by the general public. This was, after all, the Great Depression, and no institution was hated more than the bank. Dillinger had lots of friends, lots of informants and spies, He was not, however, tipped off to the feds following him to Chicago on July 22nd. And because of his life choices, Dillinger's life came to an end at the age of 31. All it takes is one role model, one mentor, one respected person to give you support and steer you away from the crooked road in a time in your life when you're open to suggestion. And Dillinger loved baseball. If someone had sat him down, told them he could be in the big leagues in a few years. Who knows what might have happened? But by the time John Dillinger found anything resembling support in the form of Governor Leslie, it was too late. As a side note, Dillinger's baby sister, Frances, who was the source of the quotes about Dillinger's major league chances, died only eight years ago in 2015 at the age of 93. If you've listened to previous episodes, you know that I'm fascinated by generation overlaps and the overlooked reality that humans can live a very long time. Only eight years ago, I could have visited Francis Dillinger Thompson and heard firsthand stories of John Dillinger, the gangster and infamous bank robber who died in 1934. To me, that's amazing. In 2008, actor and comedian Billy Crystal stepped up to the plate in spring training as a member of the New York Yankees. Crystal was 60 years old, and he'd signed an actual contract to make the act legitimate. But it was more of a gift to Crystal for his 60th birthday than any real shot at the major leagues. However, once Crystal stepped up to the plate for batting practice before the game, the players and fans took notice. Crystal peppered grounders and line drives around the field, like he knew what he was doing. Because he did. Before his acting career took off, Billy Crystal received a baseball scholarship to Marshall College in West Virginia. But then the school cut the team, so Crystal ended up in New York City. His dreams dashed until 2008. Before the big game, Crystal prepped for 10 days with former Major League player Reggie Smith, He took batting and fielding practice with the Yankees, turning double plays with Derek Jeter, who originally suggested the idea. Crystal even received hazing as a 60 year old rookie. When he went to the locker room to get ready for the game, Crystal found his shoelaces sliced and the ends of his socks cut off. In the stands that day was Crystal's family and comedian Robin Williams, who said, I hope they drug tested him for mailocks. Crystal had one at bat against Pirates pitcher Paul Mahome. Crystal managed to foul off one pitch, which missed being a base hit by a few inches. He took the count to 3-2 and, and then struck out. From Pirates pitcher Paul Mahome of the experience, quote, It was definitely a little nerve-wracking. I'm glad I didn't have to watch it every day, him getting a hit off me, end quote. At least Billy Crystal got the chance against a major league pitcher. That chance did not come for Archibald Moonlight Graham, later known as Doc. One year for Christmas, novelist W.P. Kinsella received a baseball encyclopedia. And flipping through the pages, Kinsella came across Moonlight Graham. From Kinsella, quote, What a wonderful name. This is better than anything I could invent. End quote. If you've read Shoeless Joe or watched Field of Dreams, and you're familiar with the character of Doc Moonlight Graham, you might be surprised to learn that much of the character's story is true to life. Archibald Wright Graham, who I'm starting to think of as the man with a thousand names, was born in 1879 to Alexander and Catherine Graham. Both father and mother highly educated. While playing baseball, Archie Graham earned his bachelor's degree and returned to school for a two-year postgraduate medical course. As he came up in the minors, Graham took on the nickname Moonlight because he was as fast as a flash. He did well on the various teams he played for, but did only so-so the year before he was called up by the New York Giants. That season, in 1904, Graham hit only two forty, but he did have 30 stolen bases, 10 doubles, and 7 triples and speed was a huge asset to Major League teams. There are several recurring characters in the Midnight Library of Baseball, and one is New York Giants manager John McGraw, who, in 1904, was the man responsible for plucking Archie Graham from the minors and signing him to a big league contract. A reporter from the New York Evening World said at the time, quote, Graham, a youngster who played with Manchester last year, has been signed as a substitute outfielder. He is fast on his feet and a strong hitter. McGraw believes he has in Graham a great find. End quote. And many people, including Graham's old college coach, thought Graham was one of the fastest players in the game. This former coach, Ed Ashenbach, tried to set up a race between Archie Graham and Harry Bay, who'd led the league in stolen bases the previous two seasons. But the race never happened, one more event that could have promoted Graham into the spotlight if it had occurred. And there was a good chance Graham could have won. A few years later, Graham challenged a local sprinter for $500 and won the race. Graham, incidentally, donated half his winnings to the Scranton Consumptive Hospital. Even though he'd been signed by the Giants in 1905, Graham sat on the bench until June 29th. With the Giants winning 10-0, manager John McGraw finally put Graham in the game in right field. Graham recorded zero outs. In the ninth inning, Archie Graham stood in the on-deck circle. You can just imagine this young man's excitement. Swinging the bat, the hairs on the back of his neck standing up, his body electric. Just get on base, he might have muttered to himself. Just get on base, please get on base. If Graham's teammate Claude Elliott had gotten on base, it would have been Graham's first major league at bat. But Claude Elliott popped out, and since there were already two outs, that was it. Considering how many games were left in the season, Graham probably assumed he'd still get his chance. But Archie Moonlight Graham went back to the bench and sat there until July 5th when he was sold to the Scranton miners without ever stepping up to the plate. In modern times, someone with Graham's speed would have definitely been used to pinch run, but this was 1905, a time before substitutions were common. While pursuing his medical career, Graham continued to bounce around East Coast teams and spent more and more time in the medical profession and less time on the field. Even with his dwindling field time, In 1911, American League scout Jack Sheridan supposedly heard about Graham still playing and offered him a shot to try out with the Boston Red Sox. But Graham turned him down. He was by this point fully committed to being a doctor. And he spent the next 50 years in Chisholm, Minnesota, tending to the sick and helping whoever he could. He was extremely cherished and loved in his community. In the film Field of Dreams, An actress read Doc Graham's obituary. And what the actress read was actually the real obituary from the real Archie Moonlight Graham. Here's what she said And there were times when children could not afford eyeglasses or milk or clothing. Yet no child was ever denied these essentials because in the background there was always Dr. Graham. Without any fanfare or publicity. The glasses or the milk or the ticket to the ball game found their way into the child's pocket. End quote. It seems the real Doc Graham would have agreed with the words uttered by Burt Lancaster, playing Doc Graham in Field of Dreams, when the actor said of his opportunities and mischances in life quote, If I'd only gotten to be a doctor for five minutes, now that would have been a tragedy. That's the end of the show. If you enjoyed this show and my other episodes, please leave a review on iTunes or one of the other podcasting hosts. I also welcome suggestions for future shows or other kinds of comments. You can find the podcast at my website, com, and you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and a variety of other platforms. You can also find me on Instagram, at Midnight Library of Baseball, and on Facebook. The music is A Long Way by Sergey Pavkin at Pixabay. Good night.